evening, everyone. Welcome to Mid-Cities Presbyterian Church to our, I think this is our 10th annual uh, DFW Area Reformation Conference. Um, uh, I think we started, we're, I was trying to go back through the history, uh, mental history of it. I believe we started about 2012 uh, with Dr. Carl Truman. He was our inaugural speaker here. He was actually the, the reason why we decided to have it. He just offered uh, one year. He said, hey, if you ever want to have a conference... Uh, oh, 14, 2014. Thank you. Our registrar has a better memory. Uh, he's our, also our church historian. Uh, uh, but uh, 2014, if you ever want to have a conference, I'll come. I'll speak for free. And I don't know that that offer is still standing, so don't get any ideas. Uh, but at the time, uh, he very generously came down and, and helped to, uh, uh, to get things started. Um, come on through, Dr. Beal. Um, my name is Joe Troutman. I'm the pastor here at Mid-Cities OPC. Uh, I, have a, I have a badge. There's several of us. If you see men with badges, we're either an officer here, elder, or uh, we've got a registrar. Uh, and we have, some, uh, we have some deacons running around as well uh, this evening. So if you have questions, um, just find one of us and we'll do our best to answer your questions. One of the chief questions you may have... Uh, is where are the bathrooms? I know a number of you have found them, um, but if you if you uh, step through uh, this door and go to your left, uh, immediately on your left, uh, across from the coat rack, you'll see a bathroom. It's a handicapped accessible bathroom. It's not handicapped only, uh, but if that happens to be occupied, uh, if you go down that short hallway just a little bit farther and turn to the left, the men's restroom is on your immediate left and the women's restroom is just down the hallway, the next door on the left. Um, and so uh, we have a water fountain in the hallway. Uh, we also have some refreshments in terms of, uh, of drink refreshments in our fellowship hall, uh, which is just to the right of the door in which you entered to come in where you registered uh, just to the right uh, off the lobby there. Um, we've got coffee, we've got water. Uh, tomorrow morning, uh, prior to the, the, the second session, or the first session on Saturday, which will be the second session of our conference, we'll have some snacks for you. Donuts, fruit, uh, cookies, things like that. Uh, if, you, if you miss breakfast tomorrow morning, uh, you can get at least something uh, uh, here. We'll also have coffee and, and things like that available as well. Um, uh, our, our morning session tomorrow morning begins at 9.30. We'll open the doors here about 8.30, give or take. Um, uh, so if you want to get here a little bit early, that's fine. Um, we do have uh, a book table that is, um, is, is rapidly decreasing in the amount of books on it. Um, and, uh, and for that, we apologize. We, we, uh, we wanted to buy a lot of books and <laughs> sell a lot of books. Uh, and Dr. Beale has written a lot of books. Um, but, uh, but books are expensive, so the, we've spent over $800 on books, and we're offering those at a generous discount to y'all uh, in terms of what, you, what we're asking uh, for a, a donation uh, back. But the, the result of that is they're selling really quickly, so we encourage you to go in and check things out. We can only take cash or checks. We don't have any ability to take credit cards, and we're sorry for that. We're just not that... We're the OPC. We're not that uh, technologically advanced. Uh, our, our digital projector is probably 30 years old, uh, so that's... That's the way we roll. Um, but we, we invite you to go in and, and check that out. Um, this evening, uh, following the service, Dr. Beal uh, uh, invited to take him out to dinner, uh, but he, he requested that that be after the evening session. Um, and so as a result of that, he may not have as much time tonight to, to linger and mingle uh, as he would ordinarily, um, because we need to need to get him over to, I need to get him over to the restaurant by about nine or nine fifteen because it closes at ten and it's right beside his hotel. It's very convenient. 
So I apologize for that. I may need to whisk him away uh, um, at a certain point. But uh, there will be time to, to interact with Dr. Beale uh, tomorrow if you don't get a chance to speak to him uh, this evening. And he has graciously uh, agreed to, to allowing for up to 15 minutes of question and answer time after each session. So that's an additional 45 minutes uh, that he's, he's uh, giving to uh, uh, those of us who are here uh, for which we're grateful. Let me get, I don't know how much of an introduction is needed. Clearly, uh, you all know who Dr. Beale is. He's been around. He's a known quantity uh, to us. Uh, he's, he's, putting himself, he's put himself out there. He's written many books. Let me just do a, a, just a brief uh, introduction uh, uh, for you this evening. Uh, Dr. Gregory K. Beale is professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary in Dallas. Uh, he and his wife, Dorinda, uh, have been married for 44 years. They have three children. How many grandchildren do you have? Five. Five grandchildren. I knew there were some. I just didn't see it in your bio. <laughs> um, prior to coming to RTS Dallas, Dr. Beale was a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, uh, where he served since 2010. Uh, he began his professorial career at Grove City College in 1980. From there, he moved to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in 1984, where he served until he was appointed the Kenneth T. Wessner Chair of Biblical Studies and Professor of New Testament at the Wheaton College Graduate School in 1999. Uh, Dr. Beale is an ordained minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, but he was first ordained to the ministry of the Byfield Parish Church in Byfield, Massachusetts, as a part of the Conservative Congregational Christian Conference, or CCCC, in October of 1986. Uh, Dr. Beale has served in various capacities in a number of denominations, ranging from independent churches, such as Pantego Bible Church in Arlington, uh, to the CCCC, as well as the PCA and the OPC, and uh, many others in between. He's written many articles, many, many books over the course of his career. Some of those books are available at a steep discount at our book table. We are hoping not to have to take, uh, not to have to send anything back or tuck anything away. We'd love to sell all of those books uh, at this conference. Um, uh, he received uh, a Bachelor of Arts in Humanities at SMU in 1971, majoring in philosophy and history. He received a, a Master of Arts in History uh, from SMU in 1976 and uh, Apparently, uh, if I read things correctly, simultaneously was working on his THM at DTS, graduating with his THM in 1976 as well. Um, and then he received his PhD in Divinity from the University of Cambridge in 1981. If you looked over his resume, I encourage you to do that. You can find it. He's got stuff uh, online out there. Go to the RTS uh, website and you can find him. Uh, you would see an individual whose life uh, is not only marked by academic uh, uh, pursuits and successes, certainly it is, but what you also see is a man who is committed to Christ's church. Uh, Dr. Beale has not been content to confine himself to the rarefied air of the ivory tower, but has served the church from lowly positions like youth pastor at Pantego Bible Church uh, to the heights of pastoral ministry as we understand it in the OPC. Uh, so he's, he's really ascended to the top pinnacles of pastoral ministry in his ordination as he moved it into the OPC. <laughs> I say that very much tongue in cheek. <laughs> um, when he was asked by a member of our church, not even by the pastor of our church, but just a regular member, a regular guy, via email, if he would be willing to be the speaker for our conference this year, not only did he respond before the day was finished, but he responded with a yes. Um, he just, we just needed to work out the finer details of how it was all going to happen. And this, uh, in, in God's providence, this was the date that worked. These were the dates that worked for him. So it's a Reformation conference. It's a, it's a month early. We, we know that. Uh, but, but work with us here uh, because this is how we could get Dr. Beale uh, before you this evening. 
And so we're grateful that Dr. Beal is willing to take time away from his busy schedule to serve our church and our community in this way. And we, we remain certain, we are certain, that we will all benefit richly uh, from his years of studying the Bible, not just for his benefit, but for the benefit of Christ's church. And for your benefit uh, this evening, uh, he will help us to, to understand uh, what is, for many, a very difficult, challenging book uh, to gain understanding and insight into. So in just a moment, we're going to welcome Dr. Beal up here before you. But before we do, it's our tradition. We started it back in 2014 uh, when Dr. Truman was here uh, opening up this conference. And uh, we want to open up our conference tonight by singing uh, hymn number 92. It's in the Trinity hymnals that should be in front of you. Uh, A mighty fortress is our God. Hymn number 92. Please stand and and, uh, sing this together. Oh, 
Please be seated, and then uh, I'll open us up with prayer, and I may adjust that microphone. <laughs> Let's pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful, O Lord, to You. We are thankful, Lord, that You are the truth. You are the way. You're the life. We're thankful, Lord, that we can study what is the truth, what You have set forth in writing for us uh, for the ages. And Lord, we're thankful for this conference tonight. We do pray that You would help us uh, uh, through the use of uh, of Dr. Beale, that you'd help us to understand this glorious book, uh, the book of Revelation. And so, Lord, uh, please teach us, we pray, in Christ's holy name. Amen. We welcome now, uh, before you, uh, the Reverend Dr. Uh, Greg Beale. Are we going to be okay there? I think so. We'll, we'll get it. Uh, see how this goes. Well, if you'd turn in your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. We're going to read a verse that will be significant later on. Uh, Dr. Uh, Pastor Troutman has given me, you may cringe when you hear this, he's given me an hour and 15 minutes for my message, and then 15 minutes after that. So, um, I guess we need to pray also for your patience and 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 attentiveness, depending on how big your dinner was. So, um, let's read Revelation chapter one, verse one: the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his bond servants the things which must shortly take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bond servant John. Well, let's ask God's blessing on His word. Lord, uh, we pray that you'll give us eyes to see this evening and ears to hear and a heart to understand that we would uh, uh, more deeply understand your word, apply it, become increasingly conformed to the image of your Son and reflect your glory uh, increasingly as a result of our time in your word this evening. In Christ's name, amen. Now I asked uh, uh, that God would uh, bless our, uh, the reading of the Word in our time tonight, in fact, verse 3 says, Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. It's the only book that says that in the New Testament. Now, many of us have heard a statement that's almost a proverb, uh, whether in churches or businesses or homes, um, and it expresses something about our human nature. and That, that is, that, that we've done it for so long, why change it now? And um, I can appreciate that uh, over the years. Um, uh, my lectures have stayed relatively the same. I revise them a little bit. Uh, but uh, once we get into a behavior pattern, it's hard to break out of that pattern. It's comfortable to remain in it, especially when we've done it for a long enough time, we get used to it. It becomes uncomfortable to change. And if it's something uh, that's not good, to which we become accustomed to, it sometimes takes radical attention uh, on our part uh, so that we'll change the bad situation. Um, uh, some of us who are parents uh, have to do radical things to change the bad behavior patterns of our children. Uh, we have to punish them in various ways to get their attention. We've heard, uh, I'm sure you've heard this at times, that 
maybe a, a, a teenager, someone who's 15 or 16, they've, they become enthralled with a religious cult and, and, and have gone to live with the cult. And so the family would hire someone to go kidnap that kid back and they would have to deprogram the kid, get the kid's attention and, and uh, shock the kid back into the reality of uh, what is true. We've heard over the last few years about massive earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes, especially the recent one uh, in Florida. And uh, you can hear about it, but then you see the pictures. And uh, by seeing the pictures, the severity of the disaster is impressed on us. Perhaps uh, some people uh, who would not otherwise have taken action, uh, for example, uh, with uh, Florida. Uh, some people might not have given uh, funds and might still not unless they see the pictures and they see how bad things really are. It's the case with earthquakes as well. The point is that we are people who need something radical to get our attention in order to change especially bad habits. And if this is true on the mundane everyday level, how much more is it true spiritually? We're people who get accustomed to sinful habit patterns, no matter where we are in our Christian walk, unless we're perfectly sanctified. And I don't think anyone in this room is perfectly sanctified, and so we're susceptible of becoming conformed to sinful habit patterns. None of us are off the hook here of, of uh, being tempted. Paul says, take heed while you stand, lest you fall. This evening, I, I want to ask what radical actions God takes to get our attention so that we will see the seriousness of our sinful ways, to take action and change. The book of Revelation, I think, is a good place to see what radical way God gets our attention about these matters. How does God communicate to us in this book? Now, one popular approach to the book of Revelation is to try to understand the majority of the book as literally as possible. And when this appears not to work, only then are you to interpret the book figuratively. According to this view, uh, most of Revelation's pictures um, depict literal realities of horrible, catastrophic revelation coming in the future. Um, pictures that are portrayed in the seal series, the trumpet plagues, and the bulls. Uh, the futurist approach, by the way, that is uh, to this book, when I say futurist, the literalist approach, uh, they also believe this book is only mainly about the future after chapters 1 to 3. Uh, the approach is interpret literally unless you're forced to interpret figuratively. So I want to investigate, in the light of that, one of the most programmatic statements in all of the book of Revelation about how this book communicates. And it is the verse we read in chapter 1 and in verse 1. So let's look at that. And um, says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated by his angel to his bondservant John. Now, the question we really want to ask is the majority of Revelation to be understood primarily to be literal or 
figurative. Obviously, everyone agrees there are figurative parts and literal parts. But we're asking which is predominant. Um, the futurist who takes the book mainly future approaches it more literally. A, a covenantal uh, position um, takes the book more figuratively. We might also call it a recapitulationist position where the seals and the trumpets and the bowls recapitulate say the same thing, whereas the futurists would say that the trumpets come after the uh, seals and then the bowls come after the trumpets. There's a chronological progression. So is revelation to be understood primarily to be literal or symbolic? Now, this word here is very important. Communicated. In Greek, that word is pronounced semina. And uh, different translations uh, give um, different renderings of this word. So notice this. The uh, New American Standard has communicated. That's what we read. That was what was up on the uh, screen. Uh, notice this. A lot of good translations translated as made known. So that word says he communicated to his bondservant John according to the New American Standard. In these versions here, Revised Standard, the NIV, the uh, English Standard Version, um, the New English Bible, just translate it made known. Now the King James and Catholic translation Douay uh, translate it signified and the Net Bible translates it made clear. Now when you see Bibles doing that, what that means is we have an interpretative problem. And when translations differ, often that's where the interpretative problems are. And so this word, asamanin, uh, uh, which uh, basically is translated communicated, and you see a little footnote there in the New American Standard, actually in the margin they do have signified. Um, but that's the word we're talking about here. What does that mean? And... Um, if uh, this word, um, if it means just made known or communicated or made clear, then it's not specifying what kind of communication uh, the book of Revelation is. It's just God made it known. He, he communicated it. It could be literal. It could be figurative. This verse would not be saying. But there's one translation that specifies and which one is that? King James and the others. Signified. What does signified mean? It means communicate by symbols. It's specifying. And if that's what it means here, then it's telling us what the predominant mode of communication is in the book. It's a communication by symbols. Now, how do we solve this though? Because Someone who takes the approach I do to the book of Revelation would say, yeah, signified, that fits with my view. The, the futurists would say, no, no, communicated or made clear or made known. Uh, I can still take a literal approach that way because it really doesn't define the mode of the Revelation. Now, so what do we do in this postmodern world? We just say, let's just agree to disagree. That's your view. We're going to respect one another. All right? These words have different meanings. Let's not go any further. I don't think that's a good approach. Sometimes we do have to agree to disagree. 
but uh, not in this case. This word, uh, as it's used elsewhere, can often mean symbolize, signify, communicate by symbols. In classical Greek, for example, uh, you read about the, some of the historical narratives where there's a, a, a battle that, that's about to begin. A flag is raised uh, with a symbol on it for the battle to begin. That's the symbol. That battle is to commence. And it's used that way. By the way, this word here, uh, esamenon, uh, which is used to translate these various renderings here, um, is uh, its noun form is semeon. And that word is used of Jesus' miracles. When it says he did a miracle, it's a semeon. A semeon is a noun form of the verb we're looking at, semeon. Sometimes, for example, when Jesus heals the lame man, remember that in Mark 2? It says this healing, he says, was a symbol that he could forgive sins, that he could heal people spiritually. Or in um, John 6, in feeding the multitudes, uh, this was symbolic of his ability to give and nourish spiritual life. So which is it? This is the burning question. And... um, I think the way uh, to really understand this, and I think uh, what clinches the issue is that in the margin of your Bible, you should have a reference. And in the margin to verse 1, you should have Daniel 2, 28 and following. Just raise your hand if you have that in the margin. If you, uh, Some of you don't have margins because you have your phones, which I have too. But, okay, A lot of people uh, have have that in the margins. The reason it's there is because it is an illusion. This verse is an allusion uh, to Daniel chapter 2. And I get all excited about that. And when that happens, my wife says, so what difference does it make? And so we want to say, so what difference does it make? And so um, let's look at this. Here are the key words that relate to Daniel in, in, in chapter 1. Remember? Uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God showed to him what must take place, and then he communicated it. Semino. The same uh, five words or phrases occurs in the book of Daniel. In chapter 2, 28-29, it says, there's a God in heaven who reveals it's a verb form of revelation he reveals and he has shown a a synonymous word with show what must take place notice what must take place and then in the conclusion chapter 2 verse 28 is repeated and it says God has signified what must take place when you have five words like that that occur nowhere else in the whole Bible except Daniel 2 and revelation that's what we call an illusion even though it's not a quotation, that's why we have it in the margin. Very important to use the margin. So I'm about to have a conference in the spring called Marginal Theology. And it's how important, it's, it's the opposite of, of what it sounds like, it's how important the margins are for understanding illusions. It's easy to detect the quotations. And so, um, in Daniel, remember what happened. Uh, the king has a dream of a big statue in four sections. The head is gold, representing Babylon. 
The next section is silver, representing the Medes and the Persians. The next section, next section is copper, representing uh, the Greek Empire. And then finally, the bottom is iron, probably rep representing Rome that came after all of them. Now, uh, it says at the end, a stone was cut out from heaven and struck the statue, and the stone grew and grew and filled the earth. It represents God's kingdom, and really ultimately his temple kingdom. And so, um, uh, what's going on there? Uh, is that dream a literal depiction of the future because it was a prophetic dream? In other words, is there going to be a statue? Remember the Godzilla movie, but Godzilla's marching through New York City. Is there going to be a big, huge statue marching through the kingdoms of the world at the end of time? No. No. This is a symbol. It's just like, you know, especially with the elections, you see the donkey for the Democrats in the newspapers, or you see the uh, elephant for the Republicans, or I haven't seen it, but it'll probably come, the bear for the Russians. And it's the same here. This is symbolism. And it doesn't even matter if John had used the word here, same I know. Because this is an allusion back to Daniel, this is symbolic communication. So we're going to let Scripture interpret Scripture. That's the way to solve these problems. And in this case, the use of the Old Testament and the New solves this problem. So, furthermore, this word show, wherever it occurs, you'll notice as we go back, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show wherever that Greek word pronounced dechnumi occurs in the book of Revelation, it's always introducing a picture, a figurative picture. Let me give you an example. In chapter 17 and in verse 1, we find this. Chapter 17, 1, And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I'll show you the judgment of the harlot who sits on many waters. Verse 3, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, etc. And so, is, is this a literal depiction? A woman sitting on waters, and at the same time sitting on a scarlet beast? Obviously, this is a picture. It's figurative, and it, it's introduced by, I will show you. That happens again and again in chapter 21, verses 9 and 10. We won't read it, but there John sees a city that's also called a bride. And it's obviously figurative. It has walls, etc., etc. And, um, and yet it's also a temple. That's what we're going to talk about tomorrow. Uh, he sees a new creation, yet it's a city, it's a temple. It's a garden. It's a bride. Well, which is it, John? Uh, but it's clearly figurative. And so, as I said, John really didn't even needed to use this Greek word here for um, uh, communicate, say mino, um, because of the context of Daniel. So, th this means here that uh, the predominant mode of communication is symbolism. And so instead of the approach, hey, let's interpret uh, literally, unless we're forced to interpret figuratively, I turn that on its head because of chapter 1. Let's interpret figuratively, unless we're forced to interpret literally. And probably better said, 
We are to expect a lot of figurative material in this book. I remember a student that came up to me after a class uh, that I was lecturing on this uh, in, in the book of Revelation. And uh, he said, in my church, if you take the book of Revelation uh, uh, figuratively, uh, not literally, then you're a liberal. Because you're, you're going to, you know, if you take everything figuratively, then you're going to take Jesus' resurrection figuratively, and, and so on. And I said, well, because I take verse 1 literally, that it means the book's going to be figurative, I take the book figuratively. So um, I do believe in straightforward communication. Um, now, if the main mode of revelation, then, uh, is that a symbolism, then we have to ask the question, how do you interpret these symbols? It's not easy. Now, some are defined, and they're pretty easy. For example, in chapter 1, we have seven lampstands, and they're very clearly said to be the seven churches. And we also have the seven stars in chapter 1 in Christ's hand, and they are said to be seven angels. And in chapter 4, verse 5, we have seven lamps of fire that are said to be the seven spirits of God. The bowls of incense in chapter 5 and verse 8 are interpreted. Prayers of the saints. The great ja dragon in chapter 12 is Satan. Uh, the saints fine linen, bright and clean in chapter 19 and verse 8. Very interesting. It says it is the righteous acts of the saints. Now what happens, however, when these symbols that are clearly defined early that, and they appear again, are we to give them the same definition. I would say, yes, I think we should. Let the book interpret itself. That may be why it doesn't have a definition when it occurs again. It's already been defined. But where this comes, very importantly, and I'll have you look at this quickly, chapter 11, chapter 11 and verse 4. There it says that there are two olive trees, and importantly, two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth, devours their enemies. If anyone would desire to harm them in this manner, he must be killed. These have power to shut the sky, uh, turn waters into blood, etc. So are these two individual prophets that are to come in the future? Some think so. Moses and Elijah, or Moses and Enoch, or Enoch and Elijah, or Peter and Paul. Um, because these, they're martyred in this chapter. And uh, so uh, some think these prophets will appear individually. However, I think if we let the book interpret itself, these are not two individuals. Why? Well, again, look at verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Why can't those be individuals? Well, I mean, all things are possible. They could be. But chapter 1 has already defined them. In chapters 2 to 3, as the church. But then someone responds and says, yeah, Beal, but they're two. They've got to be individuals. They're two. Well, there are only two faithful churches in chapters 2 to 3. So this is the faithful remnant church. So I, I think that this is, you've really got to let the book interpret itself at this point. And so this is the church. This is not two individual prophets who are to come in the future. Unfortunately for interpreters, however, most of the symbols are not defined. And uh, if they had been, my commentary would have been like that. It would have been very, very short commentary. Couldn't use it as a doorstop, as you can now. And, uh, but because they're not defined, 
Well, then interpreters have to come along and try to define them. Um, however, there's great hope here. Just as we saw in chapter 1, verse 1, most of the uh, pictures in the book of Revelation come from the Old Testament. And so you can go back to the Old Testament and get a good handle on what it means. doesn't solve all the problems, but it's a very good beginning. I, I, I kind of look at the book of Revelation in this way. I'm, I'm, I'm standing in, in this revelatory sea, and, and my eyes are barely above water, but the waves are coming, and I can't, I can't see if there's land uh, nearby. And, uh, but then I find a sandbar. Oh, and it gets up to here, and I can see, oh, yeah, they're okay. There's the coastline. I think I can swim there and, and make it. The Old Testament illusions are the sandbars. They get you up so that you can kind of get a better perspective of what's going on in the book of Revelation. You've got to use those margins because those margins will tell you where many of the illusions are. Now, also the numbers are symbolic. For example, seven, I think, is the number of perfection or completeness based on perhaps the seven days of creation, fullness of creation, the completeness, the seven days of the week, the fullness of a, of a week, or um, the fullness of wisdom. Remember Proverbs 9.1 that says that Lady Wisdom has hewn out her seven pillars. She represents complete wisdom. Now, uh, what really, uh, I think, suggests so strongly that the numbers are figuratively comes again from chapter 1. If you look at 1 with me, chapter 1 and verse 4. In chapter 1 and verse 4, it says this, John to the seven churches in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and then from Jesus Christ. So this is from God. In verse 4, verse 5, it's from Christ. And in the middle, the seven spirits. So there's seven. Some commentators think it's seven angels. Um, so these seven individual spirits? No, I don't think so. This is the fullness of the Holy Spirit, especially sandwiched in between God and Christ. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the first numerical shot out of the bag in the book of Revelation is clearly figurative. And I think that sets the tone for the other numbers. So, the main mode of communication in Revelation, there is, a, there, there is some significant literal material, of course, but the main mode of Revelation, especially in chapters 4 uh, to 21, actually to 22.6, main mode of uh, communication is that of symbolism. So we should interpret Revelation primarily in a symbolic, not primarily in what we would call a literal fashion. Even the use of the word literal is a little hard to define. Usually when we use it in the book of Revelation, what it means is the pictures you see of the tribulation later in the book have a one-to-one -one correspondence with physical reality. So if you see a dragon, there's going to be a dragon. Or if you see a uh, hundred pound hail, there's going to be a hundred pound hail. But that's usually the literal interpretation of the book. That's what people mean by literal in the book of Revelation. Um, but now we have to ask the question. Having attempted to solve what is the main mode, I think it's symbolism, now we have to ask, why? 
why is this book saturated with symbolism more than any other book? Because it is. Certainly there are symbols throughout the Bible. There's no doubt about that. And there, Jesus says, is parables. And we'll talk about that because they're related. But why symbolism? I, I think we can come up with a number of reasons that are helpful. First, um, the visions could not be expressed by words alone. Some things are very difficult. And so John just, you know, leaves them as they are. Uh, he couldn't put them into uh, words. He couldn't interpret them. He just leaves them as uh, the pictures that he saw. Uh, so visions could not be expressed by words alone. Secondly, symbols show continuity with the Old Testament. As I said, most of the, the pictures and symbols come from the Old Testament. So it does show wonderful continuity with the Old Testament. In fact, it's very interesting. Revelation has fewer quotations than any New Testament book or than most of them. Philemon has no reference to the Old Testament. In fact, I wrote a book in which um, I wrote an uh, essay on Philemon, and it's in a book called Commentary New Testament Use of the Old. And uh, I'm, it's the only book where it says there are no illusions in this book. So I didn't have to do much work on that essay. It's the shortest essay I ever wrote. And um, so some people don't believe I could write short essays, but I did, I did that time. So, um, so it shows continuity with the Old Testament. Thirdly, it's to make the diligent student of God's Word deep, uh, dig deeper in order to get the deeper riches. Proverbs chapter 2, 2 to 5 says, Seek for wisdom. Uh, love it. Hunt for it. Dig for it as treasure, as gold and silver. But I don't think these are the main purposes of symbolism. They're partly uh, why. But I think the main way to understand why there's so much symbolism in Revelation is to understand that John is a prophet. In fact, chapter 1 uh, and verse 1 says uh, that uh, in verse 2, he bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus. Blessed he reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy. He is a prophet. And it goes, chapter uh, 22 also mentions him being a prophet. So he is a prophet like Jesus in the Old Testament prophets. And to understand the way John communicates as a prophet, we need to go to see how Jesus communicated uh, as a prophet and how the Old Testament prophets communicated and how they use symbolism. So when we come to the Old Testament, and that's uh, uh, the, the next uh, segment of our time for tonight, um, the Old Testament prophets and Jesus predominantly use symbolism in response to one particular situation. So how did they use symbolism? What situation was it? The prophets living toward the end of Israel's history had the primary role of warning Israel about impending judgment. And by the time uh, of their ministries, their message was judgment was coming. For example, Babylonian exile. It, it, it was coming. Um, they delivered their warnings in a very rational, straightforward, sermonic, uh, historical way. They would appeal to the past history and say, look, Israel, look what happened to, to your ancestors when they did what you're doing now. And if you don't stop, 
the same judgment is going to happen to you. Remember, they went into Assyria. Um, they were cast out of their land. So, but this didn't work very well. They weren't responding. At least the majority of the nation were not responding. Their hearts had become hardened to this rational, straightforward appeal to history. Um, so the prophets also took up forms of warning that were symbolic action and parables and words. But such a change in warning form is effective only with the faithful remnant, those who have ears to hear and hear not. Um, so eventually they will hear if they're among the remnant. But those who never hear and have become hard-hearted, symbolic language and parables cause them to misunderstand further. Now this is interesting. Why would the prophets communicate in symbols so the majority would further misunderstand? And only a remnant would understand. When the prophets used symbolic parables, it was a sign that judgment was in the process of coming. And for hardened unbelievers, the literary form of parable occurred often whenever ordinary warnings no longer were heeded, and no warning would ever be heeded. But only the believing remnant, who had begun to be a part of the anesthetized, the spiritually anesthetized uh, mass of the nation, it did shock them back into the reality of their faith because they were genuine believers, part of the remnant. Just to give you an example of this, let's look at uh, Isaiah, for example. He says... I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And then he said, Go and tell this people. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. That's difficult. Isaiah's commission is to tell Israel, as he's preaching to them, I'm preaching to you, but don't perceive it. Uh, I'm preaching to you, but don't understand. Can you imagine... If Pastor Troutman got in the pulpit and said, I'm preaching this morning, but I don't want you to understand. I don't want you to perceive it. Or let's say you had a Sunday school and you said that to the people in your Sunday school or in your Bible study. If you thought that was a message from God, you probably would think it was demonic and look for another passage. No, this is God's word to Isaiah. And it continues in the next verse. Render the make. It's not it renders not as good. Make. This is another command. Make the hearts of this people insensitive. Their ears dull. Their eyes dim. Let's just see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Now, very, very difficult. In fact, I was just talking to Sinclair Ferguson uh, last night. He's, he's lecturing at Reform Seminary. We're having dinner. He just preached on Isaiah 6. And we were talking about how no one talks about verses 9 to 13 when they preach on Isaiah 6. It's all God's holiness, which is wonderful, and God's glory, which is amazing. But nobody talks about this. And it's understandable. Because they're not sure what it means, and they don't want to take the time to explain this in a sermon. What does it mean? Well, what it means is this. Israel had been so involved in idol worship, and so unrepentant, time after time after time, when the prophet says, repent from your idol worship. 
Finally, God says, you like idols? I'm going to make you like an idol. What's going on with this language of having eyes but not seeing and ears but not hearing? It comes from Psalm 115 and 135, which says, the idols of the nations are gold and silver. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have a mouth, but they cannot speak. Those who make them will become like them, even those who trust in them. If you're an idol worshiper in Israel, it didn't mean you became petrified like Lot's wife. It meant you became as spiritually inanimate as that idol. And so what we're talking about here with Isaiah is the people have become as spiritually inanimate as the idols, and God's judging them. It's a judgment. An intractable judgment. And so what happens when you have the majority of the nation like this? Because this is the majority. What happens? Well, parables come. Well, where are the parables here? Look at chapter 7 and verse 3 of Isaiah. Right after our passage. So you get this spiritual anesthetized state. They're like their idols. And then chapter 7, verse 3, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go now to meet Ahaz. You and your son, Shirar Yashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool, on the highway to the fuller's field. His son's name is Shirar Yashub. Hopefully you have a footnote for that. It means a remnant will return. So, you know, his uh, little remnant will return. Maybe he's late for dinner when he's five or six years old. Maybe it happens occasionally. His wife uh, calls out Isaiah's wife. Uh, says, remnant will return. Come home, wherever you are in the neighborhood. What do people think about this? The majority think, Isaiah, you know, he's a religious nut. He's totally absurd, naming all his children with biblical names. And, you know, it's weird. Those with eyes to see and ears to hear realize, you know what? Isaiah's a prophet. And that kid is a walking parable. What it means is we're going to go into exile. We're going to be judged, but we will return. And then in chapter 8, he names another son in verse 3, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. I'm pretty proud I can pronounce that. <laughs> and what does it mean? Swift as the booty and speedy as the prey. Now, it says even before he grows up, judgment's going to come. So how was he a parable? Well, you know when people have babies, what are the first few things they ask? Well, is the baby healthy? What? Uh, is it a girl? Is it a boy? Um, and what is the name of the baby? And so Isaiah is going throughout the neighborhood. People say, what's the name of your baby? Swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. Is it godly? Isaiah, you just can't get over this. And so every time that name is repeated, people think, there's weird Isaiah again. But those with eyes to see and ears to hear realize he's a prophet. That little baby, even though I can't hear or speak, is a parable of what's going to happen. In fact, even in, in Isaiah 20, I mean, this is very shocking. You can see why people would think Isaiah was weird here. More weird, we'll say. Chapter 20, it says in the year, verse 1, uh, that the commander came to Ashdod when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and captured it. At that time, the Lord spoke through Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loosen the sackcloth from your hips. 
Take your shoes off your feet. And he did so going naked and barefoot. And the Lord said, even as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years. Now notice, as a sign, or we could say as a parable and token against Egypt and Cush. So the king of Assyria will lead away the captives of Egypt naked. And Israel had gone to Egypt for refuge and they also will be led naked. So some understandably might say, Isaiah, uh, he's gone too far now, walking around naked. But it is a sign that they're going to walk naked because they have disobeyed God by going into Egypt and they have not listened to God. They have been unrepentant. And so, especially in Isaiah 6, we see they're spiritually anesthetized. Then a parable comes. Why? To indicate judgment, but to shock the remnant back into the reality of their faith. And I think that's what's going on here as well. Remember Ezekiel 12? You probably remember this unusual incident because Isaiah is not the only uh, weird prophet in the eyes of the majority of Israel. Uh, um, What happens is Ezekiel digs a hole through a wall. And uh, then he says, this is what's going to happen to you, Israel. Uh, You're going to have to go into exile with what little baggage you have uh, with you. He had baggage on his back. And what's interesting about that event is that it's introduced earlier in the chapter with these words. Israel's a rebellious house who have eyes to see but do not see, ears to hear but do not hear. So what's going on? There's an indication we have they're spiritually anesthetized. Just like the idols. And now they need a parable. The parable shows they're going into judgment. You're going to dig through the wall just like I have. Carry baggage on your, on your back. You're going to be judged. But a minority will perceive that uh, Ezekiel is saying something very important to them. Others will say, no, he's just, he's just weird. So the prophet's parables have a shock effect for genuine believers who have become anesthetized because of living among an unspiritual people. The parables are intended to have a jolting effect on the remnant who have become complacent among the compromising majority. Israel did not want to hear the truth. And when it was presented straightforwardly to convict them of sin, they would not accept the fact of their sin. So we find this pattern of spiritual anesthetized and then parable. We find it in Ezekiel 12. It occurs again in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 3. Very, and again, he probably was thought to be very weird in doing what he's doing here. In chapter 3, uh, verse 27. But when I speak to you, I'll open your mouth, Ezekiel, and you'll say to them, Thus says the Lord God, he who hears, let him hear. And he who refuses to hear, let him refuse for their rebellious house. So the majority are not going to hear. They're spiritually anesthetized. What does God do then? Parable to show judgment's coming, but to shock the remnant back into the reality of their faith. For look what happens immediately directly following in chapter 4. Verse 1, Now you, son of man, get yourself a brick. So he gets, he gets into a sand pile and he constructs a model of Jerusalem. Look at this. Uh, get yourself a brick, place it before you, inscribe a city on it, Jerusalem. Then lay siege against it, build a siege wall, raise up a, a ramp, pitch camps, place battering rams against it all around. Um, 
And then at the end of verse 3 says, this is a sign, a parable to the house of Israel. So it just constructs a little model in a sand pile. And those with eyes to see can see what's going on. There's going to be something really bad happening to us. An enemy's going to come. Others thought, what, what's he doing? Um, so, uh, again, we find anesthetized. They don't have ears to hear and eyes to see. Then the parable comes. The parable is showing judgments here, but it'll shock the remnant back into the reality of their faith. So the parables of the prophets show judgment for the intractably unrepentant but shock the faithful remnant. Now when we come to Jesus, how does he relate to Isaiah and Ezekiel and some of the other prophets? I've only chosen a few of the prophetic episodes here. Well, let's look. Matthew 13. Begins with, he who has ears, let him hear. Oh my gosh. That was Ezekiel, the end of Ezekiel 3. And then it said, they refused to hear. So uh, that phrase is not, is not just positive. Uh, it's often in the context, they don't have ears to hear. But it is an exhortation to hear. For the remnant, remember. And the disciples came and said to him, here we go. Why do you speak to them in parables? Now we're going to get it straightforward, forwardly from Jesus' mouth. So here's what he says. He answered and said to you, it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. To them it has not been granted. The disciples represent the remnant. Why are there 12? They represent the beginning of true Israel. That's why. Remnant. The majority are unfaithful. So, um, uh, these, these parables are going to enlighten them to know mysteries. Wow. For whoever has to him shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. So you've got two things going on here. Those who have, the remnant represented by the twelve, and uh, the mass of unbelieving Israel. Therefore I speak to them in parables. Here we go again. He's now telling us a second time. Because while seeing they don't see, while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. They're spiritually anesthetized. That's why he's speaking to them. And then, notice this. He quotes Isaiah 6. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says you'll keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. So just as Israel in Isaiah's time had become hardened for the most part, so it is in Jesus' time. And parables were like raising a flag. Judgments here. And again, the uh, anesthetized aspect is becoming as spiritually inanimate as the idols. But wait a minute, Israel in Jesus' time didn't worship idols. They thought that was only for pagans by that time in Israel's history. But their idol was tradition. We know from Mark 7, Jesus says, you have replaced tradition, God's word with tradition. They worshiped dead tradition and became as spiritually inanimate as that tradition. So he keeps on quoting Isaiah here. I'm not going to read it, but then he says he returns to the remnant. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, did not see it, to hear what you hear and did not hear it. 
here then the parable of the sower. So now he gets, uh, he gives them a parable and, and many other parables. Uh, so the, what are the purpose of the parables? Well, it is they're given because people are spiritually anesthetized. But some will be blessed. The remnant will be blessed. So Jesus delivered his warning, sometimes rationally and in a sermonic manner, uh, convicting his audience of sin and self-serving moral permissiveness. But as with the prophets, he gave parables. And because Israel had become, for the most part, an inanimate, a spiritually inanimate lump. So like the prophets, Jesus took up symbolic forms of warning. Now, very interestingly, in Mark 8, Isaiah 6, this language of seeing and not uh, uh, seeing and hearing and not hearing, is applied to the disciples. Why? Because uh, it's only applied so far in the Old Testament by Jesus in Matthew uh, 13 to unbelieving Israel. But in Mark 8, he applies it to the disciples. Let me read it to you. Verse 15. Mark 8. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss one another the fact that they had no bread. In other words, it's clear there's a connection between the bread and the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. They, they felt like there must be some among them who were good bakers. And why don't we have such good bread? They were very literal interpreters. And uh, Jesus says, you're only looking at the surface. And then he says this. Why do you discuss the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart, having eyes? Do you not see, having ears? Do you not hear? Wow, that's the language of Isaiah 6. That should only be applied to unbelievers. Why to the remnant? First of all, there are questions. This is a good example of the remnant even being partially anesthetized. Jesus is asking them, come out. If you're really true believers, come out of this apparently anesthetized state. He ends it by saying, do you not yet understand? A question. Whereas when it's applied to unbelievers, it's not a question. So he has hope for them. And he knows that they, they will respond. So they had come under the influence of the spiritually numbed and hardened lump of the majority. But they were coming out of it, slowly perhaps, but surely. With those who have ears to hear and hear not, and have become irretrievably hard-hearted, however, these parables cause misunderstanding. And that's part of the judgment. Further misunderstanding. And further anesthesia, actually. Remember in Isaiah 6, you love idols? I'm going to give you what you love. You become as spiritually inanimate as the idols, and that's part of the judgment. So as with the prophets of old, Jesus' parables were a sign that judgment had come. It's like, you know when we have flags, they indicate certain things. Often an American flag flying high in battle represents uh, a victory. Um, a, a flag at half mats usually represents a death. The parables were Jesus' uh, flag that judgment was coming and actually was being executed through him and through his parables. But it was a created destruction because the remnant was being created out of it. They were being shocked into the reality of their faith. 
So symbolic parable enlightens the believer through shock, but hardens the unbeliever. And that's part of the judgment. Remember, in the Old Testament and with Jesus, you always get the spiritual anesthetized condition. And then what do you get? A parable to show there's going to be judgment for it. And yet, it'll shock some of the remnant back. Now, by the time Revelation is written, now we're finally getting back to Revelation, by the time Revelation is written, John stands at the end of Israel's very existence as a nation. They've rejected Christ and His warnings of judgment. But how does this help us understand Revelation's use of parables? Well, you remember the phrase at the end of each of the seven letters? He who has an ear, let him hear. And it happens in chapter 13 as well. Notice, Isaiah 6.10, they have ears that are dull, their eyes dim. They don't see with their eyes, hear with their ears. Remember Ezekiel? He who hears, hears, let him hear. The rebellious house who have eyes to see, but do not. Ears to hear, but do not. And then, Matthew. Twice, at the beginning and end. Roughly. He who has an ear, he who has ears, let him hear. Those all stand behind this repeated statement in Revelation 2-3. to He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And in Revelation 13-9, it's repeated and preceded by a parable. So it's in conjunction with a parable. Again. So, this is, uh, these references come back and are developed out of Isaiah's and Ezekiel's and Jesus' statement. And so, when it occurs, it means there is spiritual anesthesia. Not just in the world, but in the churches. There's spiritual anesthesia and so, we're going to get parables. It's very interesting that in chapters 1 to 3, at the end of each of the letters, you get that statement. And I think it indicates that they're spiritually anesthetized for the most part. In fact, do you remember, if you look at the structure of the letters, church 1 and 7, Ephesus and Laodicea are the worst. They're on the outer boundaries. But the ones with no blame, like Jesus, are the second and the sixth. And then the middle three are pretty bad. They have some severe problems. And in fact, the middle verse of the letters is this. And I think it indicates the churches are not in good shape. They're spiritually anesthetized. Only a remnant are on the right track. The churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia. So uh, if you look at chapter uh, 3, I'm going to show you the center verse of all of chapters 2 to 3 and indicates it's the middle of what we call a chiasm. I just explained to you what's called literarily a chiasm. Uh, It's a literary structure. And uh, the, the middle verse is... Um, chapter 2 and verse 23. I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Now that's a phrase from the Psalms and elsewhere which talks about judgment according to deeds. So not all is good uh, 
among the churches. And remember, there's seven. It indicates completeness, and I think completeness for the church age. And so, I'm not a post-millennialist, and this is one reason why. I don't think things are getting better and better and better. I think that this uh, is a text that indicates what's true about the church in general. The church, in general, is spiritually anesthetized. Think of all the churches that there are that claim the name of Christ and deny it. So, in Jesus and John's day, Israel would become like Pharaoh. So we get chapters 2 to 3. He who has near let him hear seven times for completeness. It indicates they're in a spiritually anesthetized condition. What follows? The same thing that followed in Isaiah 6 and 7. The same thing that followed in Ezekiel 3 to 4. The same thing that followed in Ezekiel 12. They're spiritually anesthetized. He who has near let him hear, but you're not. In chapters 2 to 3. And then we get all the visions. All the parables. And what's happening, Jesus is doing from heaven what He did on earth. He's continuing to communicate in His parables. But now, the church who was the, supposed to be the continuation of true Israel, unfortunately, had become like Israel for the most part. There's a whole biblical theology of the remnant from beginning to end of the Bible. And this is part of that biblical theology. So the reason that the prophets Jesus and John use symbols is so that Israel and we should perceive spiritual reality, not merely listen to abstractions about it. And so we can say it this way, Revelation symbols, this will be the main point of, of the evening, Revelation symbols either sedate or shock us back into the reality of our faith. Revelation symbols either sedate, you'll read it and you're not going to be fazed by it, or they'll shock you into the reality of your faith. Now, generally, Scripture does that, generally. But especially these symbols. God's people often do not want to hear the truth. In fact, the word parable actually means comparison or application. You're to look at the picture and compare it to yourself. Apply it to yourself. That's the idea. How do these images apply to you? So, we're not looking... You know, some think that the locusts and... Chapter, 11, uh, chapter 9, with a face like a man, uh, a breast uh, of iron, wings like the hair of women and like the roar of chariots, that those are military helicopters. Well, in reality, I think, those describing, if you look at uh, those things from the Old Testament, they come from the Old Testament, intri- intriguingly. They're demonic, evil spirits. And so, one interpretative approach looks at things very physically. Oh, that's a physical object in the future. The other sees spiritual realities. So God's people too often do not want to hear the truth, and if it's presented straightforwardly, we'll often rationalize. What is your first response if you're married when your mate says, you, do, you were wrong? I have to tell you what my first response is. <laughs> I try to rationalize sometimes. At other times, I try to deny it. And then I have to ask forgiveness. But um, we, we're people, we, we just don't like to admit our sin. And this is what happened when David sinned. You remember, by committing adultery with Bathsheba, killing her husband Uriah, the shock effect of the parables 
on the believing yet sinfully complacent king is a phenomenon observable in uh, David's life. Remember when Nathan came to him? David clearly did not want to hear anything. He was not in a spiritual condition to be accused of sin. So what did Nathan do? He said, hey David, there's a rich man in a village and there's a poor man with one lamb. The rich man decided to have a big dinner and he took the poor man's lamb and used that for dinner. What shall we do, David? That man deserves death. He should uh, repay fourfold or however many fold. And so David's really invested in this. It's really a parable. And then Nathan says, you're the man. And David had become so invested, not only understanding it, but emotionally realizing that he was the man that hit him. The parable hit him. And that is the shock effect the parables are to have on believers. He was a believer. And uh, he was convicted of his sin. Uh, judgment came upon him. Uh, uh, his house was divided, but um, he did confess his sin. What, what are some areas of our life to which we're spiritually insensitive? Extreme poverty exists in, in parts of our country, like that in third world countries. Now, many churches I know, I know this because uh, as we've been in various churches, as we've moved, um, we'd often have our youth groups go to poor areas and help them but uh, there are probably more churches that need to do that and if we saw pictures of those areas we'd probably be even more motivated more churches would be motivated to help if you saw the pictures Um, what are some areas of our lives to which we are spiritually insensitive maybe a wrong relationship maybe maybe, uh, husbands and wives have become complacent about nourishing one another with God's word, or complacent about nourishing their children with God's word, or maybe it's a pastor who wants to bless the uh, potatoes and the chicken and wants to go to the uh, uh, parent-teacher meeting and wants to go to every kind of meeting, but uh, it's the study for the preaching that suffers and doesn't feed the flock. And the pastors, pastors can come complacent about that. These are areas that we can become anesthetized to. Just as uh, the patriarchs, they were anesthetized, as was David actually, to, to their uh, polygamy. Revelation symbols either sedate or shock us back into the reality of our relation with God. I want to show you how this works. Look at chapter 2 with me in the book of Revelation. So here's our main idea. Revelation symbols either sedate us or shock us back into the reality of our relation with God. Now, Revelation 2, notice what it says. But I have this against you, verse 20, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. She teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent. She doesn't want to. Behold, I'll cast her upon a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will, and now this is the central verse of, of the letters. I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know and I am he who searches the minds and hearts I'll give to each one of you according to your deeds. That is, if you haven't trusted in Christ, 
All you have is your deeds. And that's going to be pretty bad because nobody's perfect. So, as we look at this, the Christians in Thyatira may have thought it was wrong for Jezebel to teach a more lax morality. Notice this uh, uh, lax morality that she is um, teaching. Teaches that uh, they can commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Uh, probably here immorality. If you study that Greek word throughout, usually it's figurative. It's usually not physical sexual relations. It is illicit spiritual relations with the world and being committed to something in the world. An idol. That's probably the idea here because of the direct mention of idols. And probably the idea is there were, there were these trade union banquets. If you were a coppersmith, a silversmith, or you dealt in woolen goods, each trade had a union. That is, they, they had a, um, uh, a temple where they would go once a year at least and eat a dinner dedicated to the god or goddess who had prospered their um, particular profession. If you didn't go, you were seen as unfaithful to the union and you would be um, cast out. You wouldn't be able to practice your job. You'd lose your job. So they were Christians. And Jezebel was saying, hey, no big deal. Look, you can go in and eat these things sacrificed to idols. Because we as Christians, we need to know how the devil acts and behind idols are demons. So go there and you can really learn about how to protect yourself against demons. And that's probably what it means here when it says that uh, I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. So you, if you go, you'll learn the deep things of Satan. That may have been the rationalization. There may have been other rationalizations that I don't have time to give here. But she is teaching a compromise here. Can you imagine what kind of witness would you have? It wouldn't be very effective. If you said, Christ is the only way during the week, and then they say, well, why are you giving allegiance to this goddess over here? What about so the effect of the witness would be totally uh, compromised. Will we be spiritually shocked into repentance? Uh, the elders and the people at Thyatira should have been. But they tolerated her teaching. They may have disagreed with her views, but they thought, you know... Uh, she is a prophetess. She's taught some good things. Well, let's, let's let her continue. Um, well, John wants to shock the sluggish Christians so they'll discern the gravity of the situation. So later in Revelation, now turn to chapter 17. We now have a picture of who Jezebel is. And it's really shocking. In fact, John is shocked. As a prophet, he's shocked back into the reality of his own faith as a part of the remnant. This is amazing. But even a prophet could be shocked. We know prophets are not perfect. So we find here, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, come here, I'll show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. With whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. 
And he carried me away in the spirit to a wilderness. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple, scarlet, adorned with gold, precious stones, pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And upon her forehead written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witness of Jesus. And when I saw her, literally in Greek is, I wondered with a great wonder. And then the angel says, Why do you wonder? I'll tell you what this means. What's going on here? Well, this is about Babylon the Great. Now, Babylon the Great represents the corrupt economic, social, cultural, and religious aspects of the world. So she represents the corrupt economic, social, cultural, and religious aspects of the world. And that would include the apostate part of Israel and the apostate part of the church, by the way. In fact, at the end of chapter 17, how does... Uh, Babylon the Great have her demise. Well, the political side of the world, the kings, quote, it says, they will eat her flesh. Now, that's an allusion back to Jezebel, where it says they will eat the flesh of Jezebel. And the chapter ends in chapter 17 that this demise of Babylon happened according to the word of the Lord, just as in Second Kings 9. The demise of Jezebel happened according to the word of the Lord. In fact, in my commentary, I give a list of ten other identifications of Babylon the Great with Jezebel. It's clear. Babylon the Great's being painted as Jezebel. Why? Because Jezebel represents Babylon the Great. She represents the spearhead of the world coming into the church and trying to make it worldly. That's why. And so, actually, John's statement here, by the way, uh, here are some of the parallels between uh, Jezebel and Babylon the Great. They both had colored eyes, adorned their heads like a harlot. They functioned as queens. They seduced people, deceived people by sorceries, uh, persecute and kill the saints, and so on. So, um, basically, though past commentators have tended to identify Babylon either with the ungodly Roman culture or the apostate church or apostate Israel, I think all of these things are in mind, along with the corrupt economic and uh, social and cultural aspects. So, the elders are to be shocked. In fact, as I said, John was quite shocked. In fact, in fact, that language uh, where he says he wondered with a great wonder, and he just says, why are you wondering? It's not just like, oh, I wonder what's going on here. No. Again, this is an allusion back to Daniel, where Daniel in Daniel 4 sees uh, and interprets the vision of Nebuchadnezzar, who's pictured as a tree, he's cut down, and Daniel is appalled. He is shocked and he's fearful. And that's what this word in Greek means. Shocked, appalled, fearful. But why is he shocked and appalled and fearful? What contributed to that? Well, certainly it was the blasphemous claims of the beast that she identified with and 
the blood of the saints that was on Babylon the Great. That's one reason. But there's something else. I want to come back. Look at this language. She's clothed in purple, scarlet, adorned with gold, precious stones, and pearls. Does that ring any bells? And chapter 18 goes on and repeats this and said she also had fine linen. Well, in chapter 19, what does fine linen represent? The righteous deeds of the saints. And furthermore, this language, if you look at it, it is the language of the clothing of the high priest. So John sees this figure. She looks like a high priest. She, she has the symbol of, of the, the righteous deeds of the saints, and yet there's dissonance. How can she have blood on her hands? Why is she... Per- what's going... And so, he's appalled. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't know what to do with this. He's being shocked back into the reality of his faith. And this is shown so that the elders back in chapter 2 will see Jezebel is none other than Babylon the Great coming into the church. So the point in Revelation 2.20 is this. As long as the church of Thyatira allows Jezebel to teach these things within the confines of the church, the church itself is beginning to have spiritual intercourse with the devil's whore and with the devilish beast himself. She's the opposite of the pure woman of chapter 12 who symbolizes the true people of God. John is saying to the Christians in Thyatira, oh, you want to tolerate this teaching which you don't think is too bad? Well, if you do, you're going to be dealing with the devil himself and the corrupt, evil, demonic world. They needed to be shocked like John was shocked into the reality of who Jezebel really was, who Babylon the Great really was in Jezebel. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. John's saying to us that revelation symbols either sedate or shock us back into the reality of our relation to God. As we read the book of Revelation, we need to realize are there sinful situations in our lives that we become spiritually numb to. Sometimes I see on the way to church people jogging. Some may have gone to a real early service. Some may go to an evening service. Maybe some met on Saturday. But I'm sure there's probably some that don't go to church. They need to be shocked. Maybe for the first time to come to know Christ. So the reason John used the symbols is so we should actually see and perceive spiritual reality. Not merely listen to abstractions about it. And accordingly be shocked concerning those sins. Revelation symbols either sedate or shock us into the reality of our faith. You've heard the expression, a picture is worth a thousand words. Recently, I love to watch uh, on channel, the military channel, and another channel, I can't remember, but they always have World War II stuff on it, documentaries. And sometimes, a number of times, I've seen pictures of uh, Nagasaki and, and Hiroshima. Um, but can you imagine just hearing about it and not seeing it? Once you see it, it not only makes a greater cognitive impact, but an emotive impact. And by the way, that's what parables and pictures do, metaphors. They hit you cognitively, but they're to hit you here too, to change you in both ways. It's the same in our spiritual lives. We need to perceive the true gravity of our spiritually destitute condition. None of us are perfectly sanctified. 
I remember some years ago I made an appointment with an oral hygienist, hygienist to check and clean my teeth, uh, since I hadn't been for a checkup in a while. And she left for a couple of minutes and then came back, but, but while she was gone, there was a chart. You couldn't miss it. It's right in front of you sitting as you're sitting in the chair. And it's the progression of gum disease, pictures of it. And towards the end, it's really ugly. She comes back in. I say, hey, where am I on the chart? My teeth felt pretty good. I feel pretty proud. And she said, you're on the road to the rotten gums. I said, my teeth feel fine. What's going on? She said, well, that's the genius of gum disease. Uh, when it starts hurting, it's too late, and you've really got to do a lot of work to repair your teeth at that point. Sometimes sins like gum disease. We may not feel the spiritual hurt until significant harm has happened. And we need the parabolic pictures of Revelation to shock us into the reality of our sins, spark us back into a healthy relationship with God. Revelation symbols either sedate or shock us into the reality of our faith. Now, those within the covenant community of the Asia Minor churches never responding to Jesus' exhortation to hear, they will fall under the judgments of the book of Revelation. It hit me. I, I, it took me eight years to write a commentary on Revelation. And right at the end, I was in chapter 22, and it started talking about judgment for idolatry, and I realized. Oh my gosh. Yes, Revelation pictures judgment on unbelievers outside the church. But this was about judgment on pseudo-believers in the church. And a lot of the judgments in Revelation are for those who think they're believers, but they're really not. And they're very comfortable in their sin. So, will we be sedated or shocked? Some may need to be shocked for the first time. Trust that Christ came, lived a perfect life, died and rose again, and he represented himself. He was the ascended Lord God. Then the Holy Spirit comes and give us, gives us eyes to see, slowly perhaps, but surely. Now, some in the churches to which John was writing, they may have been very attuned. They may have really been on the right track. And in their case, yes, the images still uh, help their sanctification along, give them little shocks along the way, but it also encourages them. And so for those, you know, may, Lord, may the Lord encourage and comfort them, but others, may the Lord afflict them with the parables if they're too comfortable in their sin. So Revelation's symbols either sedate or shock us into the reality of our faith. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to be a people who love you, who love your word, and that we would keep short accounts with you and uh, in your word, and that your word also, Lord, would not only afflict us, but would comfort and encourage us, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I, I went an hour and 19 minutes. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Um, so I, I think Pastor Troutman says we'd be happy to have a time of questions. Um, we could we could probably go for 15 minutes or so, maybe 20. If there are no questions, uh, I don't know. Are there refreshments or?
I don't know. We've got, we've got limited refreshments, um, but yeah, just feel free to take up as much time as you can. Okay. There may not be any questions. Sometimes in my classes, I say, any questions? No one raises their hand. Sometimes everybody raises their hand. <laughs> yes. Nine thirty, and well, nine thirty to about ten forty-five, with a fifteen-minute question-answer period, and then we'll start the second session at around eleven fifteen, eleven twenty, eleven thirty, somewhere around there. Just depending, we'll, we need to have a, a break time in there, but we'll try to build in uh, time for uh, make sure we get the both sessions in. Yeah. Tomorrow we'll be on how the Old Testament helps us understand the final vision of the Book of Revelation. Because there's a problem there, at least apparently, uh, that you see a new creation. And all of a sudden, you don't hear about it anymore. You just hear about a temple, a city, a bride, and a garden. Why don't you hear about the new creation anymore? So that's tomorrow. Yes, sir. Dr. Bill, thank you very much for your presentation tonight. Much appreciated. Just a quick question. You mentioned the word futurist. I would appreciate if you could just explain that in the use of that terminology. What's the datum point? Is this, uh, are we looking forward to the fall of Jerusalem? Is this after the fall of Jerusalem? How does this impact our position with respect to the dating of the writing of the book of Revelation? Yes, first of all, it's very hard to know the date of the book of Revelation. Those who hold what we will call a preterist position believe it has to be written before 70. So the date's hugely important for them because they believe the whole book of Revelation is about judgment coming on Israel climaxed with the uh, destruction of the temple um, you also have partial preterists in that regard but they have to date it before 70 um, probably the majority of scholars dated around 95 but again it's 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 it, the arguments, they're, they're very, you know, they're helpful, but there's no decisive argument, in my opinion, for pre-70 or for 95. To me, it, in my view, it doesn't matter. If it's pre-70, I still interpret the book in the same way. I don't see it as a prophecy of the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, but the preterist has to see it that way. Now, I, I have reasons uh, that, that I don't agree with preterism, but I, I I think your question was futurist. What do I mean by futurist? What I mean by futurist is the typical Dallas Theological Seminary view, popular in your typical Bible church, that chapters 4 through 21 are about the future tribulation. Before that starts, chapter 4 uh, says, John, come up here, and that represents the rapture for some of those commentators. And then, after the rapture, what do you get? You get the tribulation. And the seals are the first part of the tribulation. And then we're marching on, and then the trumpets are a further intensification of the tribulation. And then you march along, and then the bowls are the, kind of the last part of the tribulation. So it's a chronological march, and so it's all futurist. And one of the reasons that um, they hold a position, um, um, among a number of reasons, is that the descriptions you see uh, in, in the um, uh, seals, the, the trumpets and the bowls, uh, we haven't seen anything like that in past history, like 100-pound hail, uh, unbelievably supernatural things. And so they say, that hasn't happened. That's got to be yet future. 
I call it the existential hermeneutical viewpoint. They're, they're looking at things based on their existence, what hasn't happened, and it has to happen in the future. So um, uh, the other reason they hold their view is they say a plain reading of Scripture is to take things literally unless you're forced to take things figuratively, which I talked about and I explained why I don't take. I think a plain reading of Revelation 1.1 is the book. It's figurative. So that's all, that's all I meant by futures. There are many forms of futurism. You know, there's a pre-tribulation uh, um, position where believers are raptured and then you have the tribulation. There's a mid-tribulation rapture for some. And then there's a rapture at the end for others, uh, which is a, a physical resurrection. And then, of course, at the end of the tribulation, Christ comes and establishes a millennium. And so um, uh, this is why it's called pre-millennial. He comes before the millennium and then he establishes the millennium. So that's what I mean by futurist. Thank you. Yeah. Any other? Yes, sir? The, the Catholics have different views on on Revelation. Some are preterist. Um, some would uh, agree generally with the way I take it. I take it that the uh, series of plagues and the seals, trumpets, and bowls that they represent the same events at the same time, but from different perspectives. Like if you're you know in a uh, an art gallery, you you see all of the paintings on, on that wall at one time, but then if you go over and, and you look closely, you only see those parts on that wall. If you get real close, you only see one painting. It's that sort of thing. Sometimes, you know, John will draw back, he'll give you a holistic view. Sometimes he'll get close, give you a more uh, detailed view of what's going on during the time of the church age. I think it's all about the church age. Um, and I think that that these are to be these plagues are to be taken spiritually, as I as I said. You can see it's a totally different perspective than the futurist. It's completely different. Yes. Just briefly, you had mentioned the literary term chiasm. Yes. Also, Old Testament illusions. How do you spell that word? I'm not familiar. Chiasm is C H I A S M, and what it means is in a paragraph. And it's really helpful once you learn the, the, the idea. When you have, um, let's say, you know, just take the, the churches, you know, the first and the last, they're the worst. Okay, Then the second and the sixth, both uh, one follows or precedes the, the worst, uh, they're the best. And the middle three are not good, and the middle is really, you know, that middle verse is about judgment. And so um, it, it, it's when you have these parallels that kind of go into the center. I, I, you know, I, 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 wish, I wish I had a whiteboard or something. But, yeah, it, some would say when I see a, an illusion that it is an illusion. Yeah. A A L L U S I O N illusion, and we could just put it this way: it is an informal reference to the Old Testament. It's not a quotation, but it is a reference. But 
it's not a formal quotation. So that's another, it's a, if allusion is you know, not a, a good word, it's just an informal reference to the Old Testament. But they're all over the place. Many more allusions in the New Testament. Excuse me? Sometimes can be a paraphrase. Yeah. Um, sometimes it could just be one word, possibly, if it's a unique enough word. Yeah. You know, like in 1 John 2, last hour, my little children, it's the last hour. You've heard that Antichrist is coming. I'll tell you many Antichrists have come from this. We know it is the last hour. In Greek, it's eschatehora. And the only place where last an hour occurs in, is in the Greek Old Testament, in Daniel 8, 17 and 19, where it's talking about the end time tribulation. So John is saying, you know, a lot, a lot of debate about Daniel. John says that Daniel 8, about this end time tribulation, it's beginning to happen in the church to which he's writing. You've heard that Antichrist is coming. I tell you, many Antichrists have come from this. We know it is the last hour of day. That's the only place where it occurs. So when you find unique terminology, like two words, that occur only in your New Testament verse and only in one place in the Old Testament, it's likely the author's making a reference to it. Now, sometimes it's hard to tell. You know, sometimes I'm sure I have seen illusions in. <laughs> In fact, one person has called me a parallelomaniac. <laughs> he was reviewing my Revelation commentary. But, so, um, you know, when you're really on to something good, sometimes you push it too far. I'm, I'm sure I've committed that fallacy somewhere along the way. So, um, well, thank you. Very important because, as I say, I'm going to have a conference uh, for uh, Presbyterian pastors, elders, and interested uh, lay people at Town North Presbyterian Church, where I attend in Richardson, Texas, we're going to do that uh, in uh, the um, end of uh, April, and it's it's going to be called uh, New Testament Use of the Old for pastors, elders, and other people who are interested. So uh, I'm going to nickname it Marginal Theology because it's it's very important. The way you know the illusions are finding good sources like Bibles. That, that, that there's some Bibles that have better margins than others, and so I'm going to talk about that. But it's one I think it's the most important tool that you can have is a good margin, because the New Testament has more illusions than quotations. So, um, do you have a thought on why Jesus Revelation in particular is more elusive? uses more allusions than quotations. Um, I'm wondering particularly if it has something to do with the genre, um, with its apocalyptic. Well, there is certainly, uh, there are these Jewish writings uh, that, are, that are comparable that we call Jewish apocalyptic writings. Um, but actually, John's work and the Jewish apocalyptic writings are really modeling the Old Testament apocalyptic, which really are the prophetic writings of portions of Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, obviously Daniel, clearly Zechariah, and those, uh, and especially one of the way they're modeling it, you, I think you said literary genre, the kind of literature that, that Revelation is. We can call it, we could call it apocalyptic in the sense that um, what's, what, what's different uh, from, between apocalyptic and prophetic? As we saw, actually, chapter 1 and verse 1 says this is a revelation, an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. But then verse 3 says it's a prophecy. 
So what's going on here? Is it a prophecy? Is it apocalypse? I would say it's both. And the difference between probably apocalyptic and prophecy is that apocalyptic is an intensification of prophecy in the sense it's focusing more on the origin of it. You start getting depictions of God on his throne and the furniture and the people up there and, 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 and demons and, and, and this sort of thing. So you, you get more of an emphasis on the origin from which the prophecy comes, but it's still prophecy. I would call it apocalyptic prophecy. And, and the, one of the striking marks of it is that if you look at Isaiah, if you look at Jeremiah, if you look at uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, they recapitulate. They go over the same territory again and again and again. For example, Ezekiel. I have a friend who wrote a commentary on Ezekiel. And, uh, you know, every couple of chapters it's, judgment's coming, you're going to go into exile, then you're going to return. And he said he had to get a, a thesaurus out just to explain things differently, you know. I mean, for example, it's very interesting. I think there are five parallel sections in the book of Revelation. And Daniel has five parallel sections. I think that uh, Revelation is partly based on the recapitulatory aspect of the book of Daniel. But it's also based on the structure of Ezekiel. It's amazing. It's like, you know, those old uh, overheads, if you get a transparency, you, uh, you get Revelation, you could put Daniel over it, and then you could put Ezekiel over it. And it's amazing to, uh, to see the saturation. Uh, another reason I think it's elusive, there's no doubt that uh, these apocalyptic books allude to earlier scripture. In fact, the book has just come out uh, called Old Testament Use of the Old Testament um, by Zondervan Publishers. In fact, I'm going to be on a panel reviewing it in, in, in a few months. And it just shows how much later parts of the Old Testament allude to earlier parts. So that's just one reason, John. They're not doing anything new. And uh, they're just copying uh, not only the way the Old Testament uses the Old, but, but even the, the various kinds of uses to indicate fulfillment, to indicate analogy, to indicate irony, and so on. I mean, um, uh, you know, some have said the New Testament writers um, use the Old Testament differently than the way Old Testament writers did. It's just not true. Uh, they're very much the same. Now they did copy Jesus' hermeneutical example, but he was the prophet par excellence to which all the Old Testament prophets pointed. Another reason we have illusions is because, um, and this is more pragmatic, what, and the reason we don't have quotations, in one verse, you might get three references to the Old Testament. Well, you can't quote that. If you want, if you want to really put three verses from the Old into one verse in the Book of Revelation, you know you got to you got to allude and do fragments at that point. Now, why would John do that? Um, well, one reason may be is he is really intent on uh, explaining that his book represents a great redemptive historical climax to the Old Testament. And he's, he's pulling it all in. Yeah. Yes, sir. What was the early churches What was their view of Revelation? Yeah, I know it's probably 
some, some held to it as being future, some held to a recapitulation view, some were premillennial, some were amillennial, um, and so it, it was diverse. You'll find some premillennialists saying it was only premillennial early on. No, it's not, not the case. Chuck Hill from Reformed Theological Seminary, Seminary in Orlando has written a book um, uh, uh, in, in, in which he shows that, that clearly there, there was plenty of amillennialism floating around. But I think there was plenty of uh, premillennialism floating around as well. If, if you're interested in someone who thinks they were only premillennial, you, you can look at um, Craig Blazing, some of his works. Uh, he he uh, teaches at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth. He's, he is a futurist and a dispensationalist. When I say dispensational, you ask me about futurists, when I say dispensational, here's the mark of dispensational futurism, that the church is not Israel, that there is a plan for ethnic Israel. And when the tribulation starts, then the focus is uh, on, on Israel, especially, especially toward the end of the tribulation. Christ comes to save Israel, and then Israel reigns with him in the millennium. But the key with the dispensationalism is the church is not Israel. So that tribulation is not about the church. Um, now, one of the arguments for uh, the notion that this is all future in chapters 4 to the end is that the word church isn't mentioned. It's only mentioned in chapters 1 to 3 and in chapter 22 after the visionary section. Wow! That's an interesting observation. However, both in chapters 1 to 3 where the church is mentioned, you get references like the church or seven lampstands. Well, they're part of the temple of the Old Testament. And so you get those kind of images throughout chapters 4 to 22. And, um, and so uh, you have other terms, other images uh, uh, that uh, I think are applied to the people of God who are the church. For example, I talked about chapter 11, uh, the, the two lampstands. That is the church who is witnessing during the tribulation and being persecuted. Um, doesn't say church, though, does it? But it's lampstands. So. This isn't really a question, but maybe just a comment in regards to your earlier comment about a apocalyptic genre and the intensification. You brought up Sinclair Ferguson a while ago, and I heard him uh, contrast Isaiah 6, which you used quite a bit tonight, uh, with Revelation 4. In Isaiah 6, the throne room fills up with smoke, he says you kind of get this visual, visualization of kind of black and white. So then when you turn to uh, Revelation 4, and God is in the throne there, on his throne there, it's all this color. And uh, so when I was just thinking about when you said the intensification of that apocalyptic genre, you know, you, we've got this allusion to the Old Testament where it's these two opposing throne rooms and one's kind of smoky, but when we start reading Revelation 4, there's all this color. You know. It's also a temple scene, by the way, which it is in Isaiah 6. Now, it is filled with smoke elsewhere in the book of Revelation, intriguingly. Chapter uh, 14 and verse um, 8 says the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God. That, that's an allusion to Isaiah, in fact. 
smoke and glory. Um, so maybe it got smoky at times. <laughs> but I do think that uh, probably the point there, I think he has a good point, that there's, uh, there's no doubt that chapters 4 and 5 are there to show fulfillment of uh, uh, prophecy from the Old Testament. And um, uh, part, part of it, uh, if you look at it carefully, and I don't have time to do this, I do it in my commentary, but uh, right at the beginning of my commentary section on Revelation 4 and 5, I show that the outline of Daniel 7, 13, and 14 and following is the same outline of Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And so then you have to ask the question, you know, I get excited when I see things like that. My wife says, so what difference does it make? So my, uh, my response is, John's picturing the fulfillment of Daniel 7. The Lamb is the Son of Man. It's amazing, but He's sacrificed. And uh, so, anyway. Um, so yeah I, yeah, I like that point. It's, it's, a, it's a good, but there is smoke at, the, at points. Uh, be interesting to try to say, okay, why is there smoke later if it's not here? I haven't worked on that specific issue, but um, I can tell you that the smoke and glory in chapter 14 is definitely from Isaiah, and there are allusions to Isaiah in chapter 4. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's right. You know, the thrice holy, the Trisagion, some call it, is found only there in, in Isaiah 6. So. But Sinclair Ferguson and I, we were talking about Isaiah 6 just last night, in fact. <laughs> we were actually talking about how no one comments on the last half of Isaiah. I think I've already mentioned that. I'm sorry. Okay. Great questions, thank you. I'm 